This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. We begin the week with some good news in long-term care for a change. Restrictions are being eased, as you heard in Bob's news. Residents will be allowed to increase the number of designated caregivers from two to four, while each resident will continue to be permitted a total of two visitors at a time. Uh, And starting on February 21st, in two weeks, people who are at least five years and older who've been fully vaccinated will be able to visit their loved ones in long-term care. And then next month, March 14th, people under five years of age, those adorable tiny little grandchildren will be able to make visits. And the number of guests a resident can have will be capped at four, including caregivers. So this is happening, although still nearly half of Ontario's nursing homes, 290 of them are in outbreak, with nearly 1,900 confirmed cases among residents and 1,500 cases among staff. Meanwhile, Ontario's new long-term care minister, the third one, announced 128 new long-term care beds in Mississauga to serve the Coptic community. We're getting these announcements all the time, but uh, are they creating the old-fashioned kind of care beds or the new kind of care that people are hoping for? So how is Paul Calandra doing? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. Forty, And now I'd like to welcome our Zoomer squad, David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Hey, guys. Hey, Libby. Libby. Uh, so, uh, Bill, let's begin with you. Uh, what do you make of the easing of restrictions? Is it all good? Uh, well, overall, it is all good. Uh, having had our loved ones locked away, kept from family and friends, has been uh, has been a huge mental health issue, and this certainly uh, will start to alleviate that. There is one caution, however, and that is: remember, at the beginning of uh, COVID, the final implementation of these rules is up to individual homes. And the lack of consistency in the way they were uh, enforced caused real confusion in the early days of COVID. We hope that's not going to happen again with these new lifting of restrictions. Uh, David, what do you say? I think that it's they're trying to uh, create good news wherever they can. I think it's very welcome. I agree with Bill. <laughs> Excuse me. But I think it's long since been uncoupled from any actual hard science, it seems kind of arbitrary. I mean, particularly this under five-year-olds, over five-year-olds. I mean, what, what, what is the magic of that day? Does something suddenly happen scientifically to prove that it's safe for, you know, babies and toddlers to visit their grandparents on some magic date in March that is not true today? So I think they're just trying to manage their way toward uh, the promised land here by steady drops of better news, but I don't think there's any uh, pretense anymore that this is uh, at all based on science. Peter. Yeah, good news, Libby. You know, um, first the nursing homes, then maybe fans can go watch the Leafs play, and I I think it's, it's all sort of, this is the first step to reopening all the way, and once the nursing homes are open, then and the, uh, you know, the grandkids can go see their grandparents, then, uh, you know, good news, it's on the way for the rest of the lockdown. Yeah. 
Um, do, I mean, half of the homes are an outbreak, Bill. I mean, the situation isn't, you know, you're not seeing as much death as we have before, but people are still getting very sick. Well, they are, and that's one of the reasons, of course, that uh, individual homes still have the right to interpret these decisions to fit uh, their situation. If that's done, uh, as David said, based on on science, but also keeping in mind that uh, older Canadians and their families have the right to make uh, decisions themselves about how they're going to protect themselves, in the long run, you know, that's what's going to happen with uh, all of us, uh, hopefully in, in the next uh, six to eight months, uh, as with other diseases, it's going to be up to individuals to have the, the right to make decisions uh, for themselves and not be dictated by uh, government. So this is a, this is a, a slow uh, step, but doesn't it really puts more responsibility on families to make sure that uh, visitors, uh, are not carrying the disease, that they're not going into homes that are in uh, bad outbreaks. Now, remember, when they talk about outbreak, you could have one one case in a in a long-term care home, and that's called an outbreak. So even even from outbreak to outbreak, there are decisions to be uh, made. And whether or not the government can continue to try to make rules that fit everybody all the time, I think is really in doubt. Well, then, of course, the big question is, what about staff? There was a big staffing shortage that was made worse by Omicron. And, uh, you know, if you have everything opened up, will that make things better or worse, David? Well, I think that the it, that is tied in with um, what is what does outbreak mean? What does the quality of care mean? Um, within the, within a nursing home, how many staff are required and when does the absence of staff, um, become critical? Uh, just think back to a pre-pandemic world. We never would have said there were 1900 cases of flu yesterday, uh, and, uh, in, in nursing homes, uh, uh, we would have said, and here's 300 people got sick with a cold and didn't show up for, which happens every day around the year. So, how many staff do I need? How bad is the decline? How many people are calling in sick? And what, and we haven't really confronted head on what's the difference between Omicron in a nursing home and Delta or the, the first variant in a nursing home. And so we're mixing and matching all these categories and all these metrics. And as a result, you have a very unclear picture. And I think that also explains a lot of frustration and, and uh, the eroding credibility of the, uh, and healthcare authorities in the eyes of the public because it is so, uh, it just doesn't seem to be anchored to anything sure anymore. Uh, you mentioned staff, and today uh, in the Globe and Mail, there's a story about a robot working in the Yihong home in the Scarborough area. It's, it's a very well-known long-term care home serving the Chinese community. Uh, we've heard about these robots, caregiving robots in Japan. Uh, do you think this is the start of something uh, that we'll see a lot of, Bill? Uh, I, hope, I hope not. Um, if, this is, if this is an excuse for repla- trying to say we'll replace Staff, a caring staff with with robots. Um, uh, that's not going to. It's not going to do the the trick. Now, if it's a case of of having uh, jobs done that are that are just uh, serving uh, and and helping out, but the, that story when I uh, read it really concerned me that somehow they were talking about robots replacing the care and attention of of real people. Well. Maybe the younger end of our demographic who have grown up uh, more with uh, computers and technology, by the time they get into long-term care homes, they may be more satisfied. But I'll tell you, those of us who are at the upper end of that uh, age range find no comfort in this. It actually looks to, to some of us like it's a technology seeking a reason for being and not a true service to our older loved ones. Well, uh, 
David, I mean, I've seen reports and studies that that these things can be very helpful, uh, especially uh, you can't have care all the time, and that people do actually grow attached to it. Well, yes, I, I want to make a, a, I agree with all of those concerns, but I do want to dissent mildly from the conclusion. Uh, there's hundreds of billions of dollars going into this industry of leveraging technology to improve healthcare and the robotics that is coming and that is already uh, well underway with constant improvements in the uh, in the um, product is, I, I think, an unstoppable trend. I think it's going to replace a lot of the routine non-social care. I mean, if you can get a robot to lift people in and out of bed and to clean up and to provide um, uh, physical uh, activities in, in uh, they they don't get they don't catch the virus you know they're 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 sterile so that's and then the other thing is that the social robots the people that talk to you and they interact with you that technology is also getting better and better and it's pretty passive on the side of the recipient they don't have to do much except interact with the robots and there is some evidence that. Um, they kind of enjoy that. It, it depends on the software, on the program, what you're asking the robot to do. So I share Bill's concern that if it's just a way of replacing staff and it's all automated and you've lost the human touch, that's one thing. But I think we're moving toward some innovation and in saying, you know, let the human touch spend more time doing what the human touch is good at doing and let's take some of these menial tasks and these physical tasks uh, and automate them because we can actually dramatically increase the quality of the service and attention. Um, and that's also going to be tied to AI and better tracking, better monitoring around the clock to uh, what shape are the residents in, when do they need the care immediately, um, better, better monitoring and alerting systems. So uh, technology, in my view, is going to be a major, major uh, influence on improving uh, uh, what goes on in these uh, in nursing homes, Peter? What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I'm I, I'm a little bit skeptical of the um, you know the, the human robot that interacts with people and like I I, I um, I've gone to several conferences where they had one of those things and I've never felt very comfortable with it. You know, but uh, Idea but City, it, we had one. Well, yeah, we did, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's a little—it's a little bit off-putting, really. But um, the 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 what what David was talking about—the the automation. I mean, that that can open up uh, new doors to care. You know, like uh, monitoring patients if they fall. Um, you know, giving them a tablet where they can order their dinner when they want it, and it's brought by a robot. You know, cha- uh, turning off their lights when they want to. Um, you know, um, medication is tracked. Your your vital signs are tracked all the time. It, it just it's 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 this automotive um, you know tidal wave of of things that are coming down the pipe. And uh, and I, I think a lot of these can be applied towards nursing homes. Like now, a lot of them are, are kind of useless, but but there there are some specific things that can be applied to nursing homes. And and if if you know, if, if nursing home operators really put their mind to this, um, the, it, it can make a huge, uh, you know, a huge benefit for the for the uh, residents and their families. Well, I'm I'm thinking not just nursing homes, but what about aging in place? Absolutely. I mean, it, it's a huge market coming down. I mean, we we've seen the the first edge of it with the, uh, you know, the stair lifts, but that's that's. Peanuts compared to what's coming. And, it's already uh, it's already yeah. a multi hundred billion dollar industry, and right. it's getting started. These sensors, and we were I, we've met a few groups through uh, through CARP actually that want to work with us. So these uh, in home sensors are increasingly going to be wireless. Even the concept of having to wear a medallions in case you fall, which is a fifteen year old uh, scenario, that's going away. It'll all be done with. Uh, non-intrusive sensors it'll be it, it, your home will become your your actual home that you live in will become a component of your caregiving um by having automated facilities and sensors and that technology is already starting to be deployed mm-hmm. well it's really interesting so you have all these uh, ultra modern technological <clears throat> solutions in the offing 
Then on the other hand, and, and here in Ontario, we're seeing this every other day where uh, a minister and a mayor get up and they, with great fanfare, announce we are building another however many, 128 or whatever, long-term care beds. Uh, and it seems to me, I mean, that a lot of those long-term care beds are, are built on, a, on a, an old-fashioned model, David. Well, they are and they aren't. I think that the trap that the government is in, they can't, and I say this regardless of who the government is, they can't very well say, we've got nothing to tell you, but three years from now, we'll have all the bright, shiny toys in place. So like, it's going to be a radio silence till the ultimate answer is ready. So it's kind of like a steady progression. But they are doing some things. The the uh, new home, the uh, brand new home that they announced in uh, in Pickering last week, uh, has fewer uh, residents per uh, floor and has very uh, cleverly worked out access, uh, better common areas, um, better uh, segregation of the back-end services, the delivery of food, the storage of equipment, uh, so that it's out of the way and that it feels more like a home to the residents, and yet the stuff can get deployed quicker and more efficiently. Um, they, they thought that through very carefully. And it was also fairly innovative to get the thing built in a year by using land, uh, existing land on a hospital site and using modular building. So there are some new ideas in that, um, that I was quite encouraged to see. And I think that they're trying to incorporate the latest thinking. Uh, but it is going to be a progress, a, a progression. It's not going to be an abrupt overnight everything. Over. Everything's perfect, you know. Bill? I, I agree with David. That uh, Lake Ridge Gardens uh, uh, building that just opened, uh, they now have pods of, of uh, rooms of 16 rather than 30 as before, much closer to the kind of thing that CARP has been uh, calling for. And the building is, is built in such a way with circular hallways so that... Uh, uh, dementia, uh, patients are able to wander freely without coming to dead ends, all the kinds of things that we have been talking about. Uh, the, the worrying part, of course, is though that they're also, uh, not just building, uh, new facilities, but they're also renovating some of the older ones. And I haven't seen anything that shows that the renovations right. to older homes have had the same, uh, quality of, of care uh, proposed in them that the the new bills have but at least they seem to have been uh, listing and and realize that there is a modern way to build long-term care homes and they seem to be able to do it and they seem to be able to do it uh, uh, quickly uh, uh, the number of announcements as you said almost every day but we're hearing about hundreds and hundreds of, of new beds every day and that certainly is more quickly than any movement on behalf of the government that we've seen prior to the last couple of months. Okay, and they keep referencing the promise from the election for the 30,000 beds. Now, the, the guy making the announcements now is is our third long-term care minister. So first we had um, uh, Fullerton, who was roundly criticized, who CARP had, had you know, uh, advocated for her firing, which eventually happened. And then we had Rod Phillips, who was very well received and really looked like he was taking the file in hand, and he quit very abruptly. And now we have Paul Calandra. So, uh, Peter, uh, what, if anything, is the word on Mr. Calandra? You know, I I, I did a look around for him, and I, I couldn't find that much. He, he doesn't have a very long record or auspicious record in uh, in serving government uh, positions of any importance. But um, you he know, he was a house leader. Yeah, um, but short term. Um, the the uh, the um, pro- like he. I thought Phillips could. You know, he he a successful businessman, successful politician. He could bring those two forces together, and in, in a in a portfolio that really needed that kind of input from both sides, from both business and government. But, um, but he's gone, and now Calandra will have to do the same. And I, I just don't know enough about him to know whether he's, he's going to be adept at doing that, because 
um, you know, we're, we're at a turning point. We're at a, a point where a lot of money is going to start pouring in and a lot of technology is on the horizon. And um, we need someone to marshal that uh, through. And um, I just don't know enough about him to, to know whether he can do it or not. Uh, David, what's your take on what is your take, if you have one, on Paul Calandra? Well, he's uh, uh, there's two theories. One is that it's a holding action, and then the real guy will be uh, announced if they win the election uh, in the post-election cabinet. He he does have um, a very close relationship historically with uh, Christine Elliott, the Minister of Health. So there was some uh, thought there that he's, you know, he's a savvy guy. He's an insider guy. Um, he's worked with her before. And there's no future for the Ministry of Long-Term Care, regardless of who holds the position, uh, unless it is closely allied with uh, the Minister of Health. And that was one of Fullerton's problems, that she couldn't get the attention of the, the health ministry. And they went one way and and left uh, Fullerton and her then-deputy, who also got uh, dismissed, uh, left them sort of, you know, twisting in the breeze. And, uh, you know, that went away with the advent of Phillips, and it'll probably stay with Calandra that the two ministries are very, very closely aligned. Elliot was at the announcement in Ajax of the new, uh, uh, the new facility, and I think that they're determined to keep those two ministries in sync. Bill? Well, I think one of the things, and David just mentioned it, when they got rid of Fullerton, uh, they also changed the bureaucracy, the, the deputy, many of the other senior officials. And Calandra has, uh, has inherited them. So, uh, the, the, and certainly we know the bureaucracy has to take a major role in any of these uh, changes. So although Calandra himself may not have uh, any real uh, influence in what's happening. I think what we're seeing is what uh, uh, what was started uh, before he took place is now actually coming into uh, uh, coming into use. The facilities are being up- upgraded, and they're they're following through on some of their uh, provinces. Although the announcement today that said that they were going to put an additional three point seven billion. Uh, between 24 and 25 sounds more like uh, electioneering than uh, actual uh, uh, we're going to do it uh, assertion. Uh, and speaking of long-term care and its place in the platform, uh, very big news at CARP. And the Premier, Doug Ford, is going to be addressing the annual general meeting uh, later this week. Uh, David, what do you want to hear from him? Well, I think that uh, I'm, I'm what I'm expecting, what we'd like to hear is more about the topics we've been talking about right here on this show, Libby, is that what are they, what are the plans uh, uh, for the future? And I, I think also I'm looking for, I hope for some sort of crossover between uh, long-term care and health care in general, because our concern is that the uh, uh, pandemic exposed not only the huge deficiencies in the long-term care system, but the huge underlying deficiencies in the healthcare system overall, where the hospitals, even before COVID, uh, were you know right on the edge of capacity, where the workforce was inadequate, the facilities were inadequate, and you know you can criticize what they did or did not do when COVID came along, but they were they were working with a very creaky machinery after all. Uh, underlying it. And our members are very aware of now, we're hearing a lot more of this, and Bill can speak to it probably more effectively than I can, but that, yeah, COVID, but what about wait times? What about canceled surgeries? What about the fact that the hospitals have no margin for error if anybody gets sick? And what are you going to do to fix all that, Mr. Premier? So I think that it would be prudent for him to address that. Uh, Bill, (laughs) go ahead. Yeah, well, we're we're hoping that uh, uh, he'll hear what we've been saying. Uh, that you know, we know from history and that major disasters are uh, an impetus for uh, important change, uh, and they expose the uh, the problems of before. And certainly, COVID has. So uh, we're expecting him to be able to say we've learned from uh, COVID. We know it's a unique opportunity, and now we're going to make the investments and uh, change the regulations 
that are needed to build a healthcare system in Ontario that's what we want, what we need, and what we can can afford. And and we'll we'll learn and not just move out of COVID and go back to the disaster healthcare was even before COVID. That's what we want to see is is a prob- a promise and action on real change that doesn't stop uh, after the pressure is off from from COVID. Peter, I mean, uh, you know, uh, COVID underlined that we don't have a good number of hospital beds per population, but the whole impetus beforehand was moving to a community base. Do you think that's going to get lost in all of this? I, excuse me, I really do think it is. And, and uh, you know, even in, in the short term, we've seen a lot of sort of nurses in the community have been pulled back into working in hospitals because of the shortage of staff and working in long-term care because of staff shortages there. And, and it's affected the home care, um, you know, it's affected patients in home care greatly because they just can't get access to staff who have, um, you know, been sort of pulled away. And, and it's going to take a refocus on that. And I, I don't know if they have the bandwidth for both long-term care and home care, community care. So, um, it might be a case of Libby that we'll see a lot of focus on long-term care now at, at the expense of home care. Okay, I'm going to take a quick call from David in Toronto. Hi, David. Hi, how are you today, Libby? F- fine, how are you? Good. Uh, so I've got a quick comment just about the putting in um, technology into the uh, automation, into the, the homes, home care. Um you need to make certain that the automation is maintained so you don't get into any ransomware situations in any of these long-term health care situations. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Because that happens in some of the hospitals, right? Yep, yep. Uh, we all, uh, cyber, cyber threats are bigger now that uh, we've all been relying on technology more. That's a good point, David. Thanks for that. Great. Thank you. Have a- Okay, uh, we're out of time. Uh, so um, who am I giving? Bill, uh, I'll give you the last 20 seconds because uh, you're going to be running that annual meeting. Yes, well, let's invite everybody to attend the uh, an- annual uh, meeting and the uh, presentation. If you go to our carp.ca website, you'll be able to find out how you can uh, sign in and get the link so you could hear both the report of our our advocacy priorities for next year and what the Premier of Ontario has to say about uh, how he's going to face those demands in the coming months. Okay, thank you so much to our Zoomer squad, David Kravitz, Bill Van Gorder, and Peter Mugridge. Thanks, Thanks everybody. Everybody. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Okay, we're taking a break. When we come back, we will check in on those trucker convoy protests, freedom convoy, whatever you want to call them. And uh, it's definitely a a tale of two cities uh, here in Toronto and in Ottawa, where it still looks to be quite the mess when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. When it comes to the truckers' protests slash occupation, it's a tale of two cities. Here in Toronto, the demonstrations took place mostly without incident, and they seem to be over. In Ottawa, they are anything but. The city has declared a state of emergency. The NDP is calling for an emergency debate in Parliament, though it's hard to see what that would do. Just a couple of hours, the Ontario Liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca, called on the Premier to tell them that they either leave or lose their rigs. He's saying go for a seizure of assets according to the law. There is word and some pictures that police have started to do some enforcement as opposed to the beginning of the protest when there seemed to be absolutely none. The Ottawa police chief, Peter Slowly, has said he doesn't have the resources or even the correct authority to shut this down. Uh, their efforts, I have to say, have been called farcical at best, and residents are feeling abandoned. And where's the prime minister? He is apparently holding private meetings today at an undisclosed location in the capital region. Is he just hiding? 
And as for the better situation here in Toronto, did we just benefit from hindsight or is there more to it? People, what do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Dr. Kevin Smith, CEO of the University Health Network, Counselor Kristen Wong-Tam of Ward 13 Toronto Centre, and Dr. Stephanie Carvin, an Assistant Professor of International Affairs at Carleton University in Ottawa and an expert on national security issues. Thank you all and welcome. Hello. 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 Let us begin with Dr. Smith. So one of the main reasons for shutting a lot of streets near Queen's Park, not letting the trucks near there, was keeping hospital access Open. So, how did it go this weekend, Doctor Smith? And and did you have to still, uh, with all of this, cancel a lot of planned procedures? No, we fortunately didn't. And I really want to say a sincere thank you to all the participants who, who worked with us. Toronto Police Services, a, a special shout out to to them and Chief Raymer, who uh, really were outstanding to work with. So just on University Avenue, for those who might not be familiar with the geography, uh, University Health Network, which is uh, two of our sites on University Avenue. Uh, Dr. Smith, are you still with us? I am. Okay. I don't know where that's coming from, but uh, please continue. so so you were able to do whatever you had planned then on Saturday? We were, and uh, you know what? Our staff uh, really gave us great feedback about getting to work. Our patients, who are very anxious, as you can imagine, particularly our Princess Margaret site, our Emerge sites, um, who are very nervous about coming in. Really, the police really helped them get to the environment, and it was very, very well done. And I also want to thank the protesters who uh, did respect the police presence and respect the importance of um, protesting civilly and moving uh, moving along quickly um, so that uh, p- patients were not interrupted any more than they had to be. It really went as well as it could have. I'm glad to hear that. Councillor Wong Tam, uh, I'm sure that when you look at your colleagues in Ottawa, you're probably pretty happy with the way it went here in your ward in downtown. Uh, yes, I am. I'm very pleased to see the outcome from this weekend's uh, organization. Uh, both the Toronto Police and the City of Toronto, I agree with Dr. Smith, uh, deserve our thanks. They have been very proactive in communicating a response plan, knowing that the protesters were coming uh, to the city. We had the advantage of seeing what was unfolding in Ottawa, and we were not going to take any chances. So the response was going to always be multifaceted. Uh, and we were going to create that sort of inner no-go zone uh, within the core of the city, which meant that, of course, pedestrians and protesters on foot could come come through. Uh, private passenger vehicles to some limitation could come in, but not the oversized vehicles that we saw in Ottawa. Okay, let's bring in Dr. Stephanie Carvin. Uh, uh, you are an expert in national security. There are people who say this whole thing is threatening national security in Ottawa. Um, I think there's elements that uh, certainly ring to national security when you have, you know, a group of people who have, you know, basically uh, the, the organizers of this convoy, not everyone in the convoy, but the organizers themselves who have said some fairly Islamophobic, anti-Semitic and conspiratorial uh, views. Uh, there's definitely a national security element there, but at the same time, that doesn't mean we should be using national security elements to solve this problem. I'm tremendously disturbed by uh, the leadership of the city of Ottawa, who's basically been trying to kick all of its problems up to the federal government rather than trying to use policing solutions. I mean, I'm not going to pretend it's easy or fun, but, you know, there is a role for national security here, but certainly I'm not convinced it's rolling the tanks into the city capital. Uh, the police chief, I mean, he's used some very bureaucratic language. He said he doesn't have the right Police Services Act. He said he doesn't have enough resources. He got extra officers from the RCMP. But, uh, you know, Ottawa residents feel completely abandoned and under siege, especially with that incessant honking. Yeah, it really is a bleak situation. Um, the, the, the incessant noise. There's actually a, 
uh, an injunction that's being sought on behalf of a resident of the city of Ottawa who who just wants an end to the noise uh, and arguing that, you know, the noise is actually causing physical harm to to her hearing. Um, You know, and and then, of course, just the mental stress of all of this. So, um, yeah, and it, it just doesn't help when you have a, you know, a police force that said that they're not sure that there is a policing solution. And even when, you know, I, I was just uh, looking at, at Twitter when he was just doing his press conference just a few minutes ago, um, you know, it totally says that they're cutting the, these uh, protesters off from fuel, but there's like, like lots of reporters are showing video of, of fuel being taken to these trucks to refuel them um, right as he was speaking. It's just not clear that anything is, is still being enforced, even if there is uh, more action being taken. Uh, Councillor Wongtam, I mean, it's hard to imagine that uh, they would listen to an injunction. Um, that's right. And these these are very desperate individuals. Like, we have to recognize that many of them have lost their jobs. They have, um, you know, perhaps been radicalized in the dark corners of the Internet. There, ha- there are proven elements of, of white supremacists that are organizing and, of course, funds uh, that are coming in from the United States. So I don't think that we can necessarily uh, turn our back on Ottawa and say that uh, that is only left to the hands of the local police or even the province. Uh, it really has to be the whole of government with all three orders of government uh, working together. Um, and and let's let's be realistic. Like these are these are large industrial vehicles. They cannot be towed away very easily. And we have been told by the Ottawa police, and I've been speaking to uh, local res- uh, residents and, and uh, politicians there myself as I was preparing for the Toronto, um, uh, you know, protest this past weekend, is that the the, the towing companies are refusing uh, to to pick up the rigs. So, you know, these these vehicles can be weaponized. We, we learned this firsthand tragically in Toronto with the van attack of 2018. Um, so they really do have to take a different approach now. And when you start seeing people carrying, uh, you know, propane tanks and setting up uh, semi-permanent structures, um, you know, that is uh, where you have to draw the line. So public safety and public order is something that I believe every order of government has got to bring to bear upon Ottawa right now. Uh- Dr. Smith, uh, just getting to the general situation, I mean, we, we are at a point where there have been a huge and dangerous number of cancelled surgeries and procedures and cancer screenings. Uh, does this set that situation back further in the province? Uh, you know what, I don't think that it does for the Toronto hospitals at the moment. It is very challenging. As you know, we have um, many, many uh, hundreds of thousands of, of uh, interventions that we're behind, and we're behind because we had to treat other patients, uh, many with COVID. We also, of course, kept going with the other urgent and emergent surgeries, heart attacks, strokes, motor vehicle accidents. But, you know, there are literally hundreds of thousands of um, interactions to now catch up on and the importance of priorizing those with those that could have a worse outcome with the greater distance between treatment. So I think we're very focused on that. I do worry for our colleagues in Ottawa, especially. So if if accessibility becomes a challenge and accessibility to primary care because of this becomes a challenge, then we begin looking at regional disparities as well as provincial disparities. And that is definitely concerning. Well, uh, hospitals uh, are not in the same proximity to Parliament Hill there. But, no. but um, it, I mean, obviously, it, it can still affect things if it's hard to get around. Well, and, and worse than that, actually, because a lot of primary care doctors will be downtown. A lot of patients who live in you know, Ottawa, like all, much of Canada, becoming more of an urban centre. Many people living in areas where it could be more difficult to get to that screening program, to get those problems looked at, even to make that appointment and say, oh, I don't want to go down there because it's difficult or out there because it's difficult. Um, so it is really important that civil society get back to normal and people can consume healthcare services, including primary care, most importantly, and prevention as quickly as possible. Okay, uh, let's take a couple of calls. Rudy in Toronto. Hello, Rudy. Hi, Libby. Yes, the, this incessant honking in Ottawa is having a direct, detrimental effect on people's health, especially those with high blood pressure and heart conditions. Even in my city, when I hear somebody blaring their horn, when a simple beep would do it, and it, it uh, unnerves me. 
And the other thing is that uh, people maybe not consider, but to me it's just as important as the effect it has on the wildlife of the city. You know, birds need to sleep at night. They can't survive night after night with that kind of honking. I know from anecdotal evidence that they can kill them. And the, even uh, natural things like loud thunder has, has killed the birds. And then people have their pets in, uh, at home, and uh, we know what happens with them. They, they cower under the bed and so on. So it, it's not just us humans, it's the animals. And, and these people that uh, think they, they're having a good time just blaring their horns, they don't, don't think about the, the harm they're causing to us. Well, maybe, uh, maybe they're uh, deliberately doing it. Rudy, thanks for your call. Let's go to uh, Daryl. Hi, Daryl. Hello. Uh, I'm just really curious about the distinction, the difference between what's going on in Ottawa and what happened in, um, in Toronto this weekend. Especially in concern of, you know, there's a liberal government up there, and we have a conservative government here. And I'm just wondering, you know, if there's any communication going on between these organizations and, and the different governments. And... Uh, you know, most of the mandates that they're objecting to are actually provincial, uh, other than uh, um, um, employees for the federal government being mandated to be vaccinated, which is within their purview, the safety of their, their workers. The only other one would be the border, and I do recall Doug Ford, you know, saying you should stop people coming in at the airports and things like that. Well, Doug Ford has condemned the protesters. He told them to go home. Uh, he is the premier of the province. Ottawa is in the province, though it's the national capital region. Uh, so I don't think, I, th- I would think uh, that uh, basically the difference was that here in Toronto, uh, the authorities got a chance to see what happened and they prepared for it and that Ottawa was just woefully unprepared. Daryl, thanks for your call. Um, we've got to take a break, but we will be back with more on the situation with these protests slash occupation in Ottawa and the big difference between the way it played out here in Toronto and what is still going on in Ottawa when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about the protests, the ongoing protests that many people are calling an occupation in Ottawa and the difference in how it was handled here. And Stephanie Carvin, You've said that uh, the city, you think, is abdicating its responsibility to a certain extent. And I'm thinking of, you know, riot control that I've seen certainly in other places with other means. Uh, I don't want to suggest anything, but even the use of, of, of water or something like that. So, you know, I, I just think that there's good basic policing, like, non-violent things that we can do first, um, going after, you know, the insurance, uh, issuing tickets, um, trying to get court injunctions. Just, you know, if you're going to set up a, a you know, a, a declare a red zone, then make sure people aren't bringing in um, tons of fuel, like, again, which is what we're seeing online and reporters are showing that, you know, despite the ban on, on refueling, that it's still going on. So before we hit water cannons and things like this, let's just um, um, try basic policing. And the reason I say this is, is a couple of reasons. One is, again, I think if you use really aggressive tactics, this is going to absolutely play into the propaganda of this movement that they're just going to say, oh, look, you know, the, the government's against average Canadians. They had to bring out their troops, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but even last night, we saw for the first time, Ottawa police really take a stand um, and they went to one of these refueling and supply camps, literal camps that they've set up, and they took away some of their supplies. And immediately the shock uh, of this moment was apparent. I was watching on, on some of the live streams by, uh, from some of the organizers. They were stunned. They were shocked. And, you know, of course, they were saying they're determined and they'll work around this and they're going to stay. But there's a very different energy around this movement today around this convoy. And I think that just comes from doing basic policing. So, um, I, I, you know, this may take a few days to solve, 
But as we kind of, you know, engage in this kind of normal practice, which seems to have been abandoned by the police entirely, um, I think we may see some progress. And I absolutely just think this kind of basic, you know, you know, Ottawa is a city of bureaucrats. We need to bureaucrat the heck out of this. Like, where's the ticket? Yeah, but do they, the, they've been you know, giving the seizures and insurance, all that stuff. There've been hundreds of tickets given out. I mean, do, do these, I mean, Councillor Wongtam, what do your colleagues on city council in Ottawa, they seem to be wanting more than that. Um, they do, and they're at their wit's end because they obviously politicians cannot direct the uh, the Ottawa police, and and for a number of great reasons. Uh, however, they're hoping that the police, at minimum, uh, you know, enforce the rules. There are a number of bylaws that are in place, such as no parking, no loitering, uh, no uh, idling. Like those are all rules that that should be enforced. And I know that these are folks who are probably going to take the ticket and tear it up in, in the in the face of the bylaw enforcement officer. However, there's other things that are noted that um, open uh, open fuel is being transported, and not just in in one propane tank. But I've seen images where where 20 propane tanks and and the uh, the fuel journeys were, were being uh, carted back and forth. They set up semi uh, you know uh, temporary structures with wood boards, um, and they're serving. Uh, um, I'm not sure what they're serving. Probably some hot beverages to stay warm. Uh, there are generators being plugged in. Um, none of that should be allowed, and there are all sorts of rules for that. So if you can cut that off at the very minimum, you can at least reduce the number of supports that they can uh, continue to operate and to make those sounds um, out of their vehicles, and that would be uh, one step. The other thing is that I want to note that, you know, there are well-documented now um, reports that a number of the, the lead organizers, I wouldn't say every protest report, but the lead organizers of the convoy have um, uh, ties to white nationalist uh, types of organizations. And so, you know, we have to be able to now approach the situation with a lens of, of you know, domestic terrorism, um, because uh, we know that they don't seem to be, uh, number one, uh, willing to, to cooperate. Um, and that is very difficult for the police to respond to. Um, there are, of course, other laws that then kick in that have to be escalated. Um, and the residents of Ottawa deserve better. Um, it's been 11 days and, and going on, and there seems to be no end in sight. Well, that's exactly right. And the things that you have mentioned, I mean, they are allegedly being done to some extent. They shut down one structure and then another one pops up a few blocks away. Uh, they say they've cut off the, the fuel or they've, they've commandeered some fuels. This is the police. And then there are all these pictures online of, of, uh, the trucks being fueled and the tickets. I mean, I think you were right when you said they're going to rip up the tickets. Uh, tickets, injunctions. I mean, it, it doesn't look like these things have any traction. No, and, and they need to. I mean, you know, to be quite honest, although I, don't, I cannot, um, you know, direct the Toronto police, but if the Ottawa police send out a request for other police resources, I'm sure there are probably going to be surrounding municipalities that will want to come to their help. Um, you know, the same ex- expectation would be uh, if we had a fire in Ontario that needed additional firefighters. Oftentimes those resources and, and, and personnel are redeployed where we need them. And, you know, Ottawa is Canada's national city. And what's happening there is heartbreaking and, and to be quite uh, honest, uh, maddening. Well, um, Stephanie Carvin, uh, I've had commentators say that... It- Given that it's our parliament, uh, you know, the rigs should never have been allowed there in the first place. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I mean, look, I used to live downtown and just, you know, unfortunately, because of the interprovincial bridge situation, which is, I don't know, a conversation for another day, um, trucks have to go downtown through uh, the core. So it would be impossible to to really ban trucks entirely. But yeah, um, it, it seems, uh, you Can know, ban them from Wellington Street. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and like for comparison, on Canada Day, you can't even bring a bottle of water onto Parliament Hill, and we're watching people truck canisters of fuel. It's just like I cannot even like for a city that's known for its nimbyism and like for shutting down at, like an eight-year-old girl's lemonade stand. Like this is just absolutely mind-boggling um, to see happen. So yeah, I mean, I, I, it is my you know I, I think there were. 
there, there's clearly going to be a lessons learned here. I, I think one of these lessons is going to be when a, a group led by extremists say they're going to come and lock down your city and that they are going to stay there until the government is overthrown, that maybe you should take that a little bit more seriously. But um, look, the other thing is here, too, and, and I'm not as familiar with bylaws as, you know, the counselor, but, I, I, you know, these trucks that are downtown are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, um, you know, if, if they, these guys have an interest in these trucks leaving safely, right? Um, and so I just think there's other things that we could be doing. We could be far more creative in, in how we, you know, interact with the truckers and things like that. I'm not saying destroy the trucks, but I'm also saying... You know, um, these guys have an incentive to make their make sure their trucks leave safely. And um, that's what we should be working towards. How can we nudge them towards doing this while we also try and stop the refueling and things like this? It's um, we, we you know, I, I'm very happy to hear that um, the counselor thinks that other municipalities want to support us because, my goodness, we are in need of advice here in Ottawa. Well, yeah, but uh, the councillor also said the tow trucks don't want to tow the rigs. Uh, and uh, maybe Stephen Del Duca was on to something where he's talking about seizing them, but I would think that would take some time. Let's uh, hear from Murray and Malton. Hello, Murray. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? Go ahead. Oh, not too bad. Uh, these trucks that rather high, uh, it'd be fairly easy for a cop to lay down on his belly and shoot out the oil pan. That'll force a truck driver to at least shut it down. Otherwise, he's blowing his engine. That way, it's not used as a weapon. But uh, the biggest problem I see is that you have a lot of anti-maskers uh, supporting the truckers out there, and the truckers are encouraged by how many people are out there. So they're more than willing to stay. Uh, the anti-maskers have been a problem since day one. Uh, Doug Ford will tell you his place was uh, surrounded by them a couple times. But uh, you got to get rid of those people first. Yep. Okay. See, that's all I have. Thanks, Thanks. Marie. Uh, Pat in Toronto. Hi, Pat. Yeah, hi, Libby. Uh, we have to think back of what happened when the G20 was here seven, eight years ago, whenever that was. Uh, you know, the police got heavily criticized for what they did, and there were $17 million uh, paid out. I think some of that is affecting how the police are operating. Uh, they've got to be aware of that in the back of their mind, and Probably what we need are some new specific laws, it's as simple as that, just design laws that will deal exactly with these issues. Okay, well, uh, I think this time the police will be criticized for what they didn't do. I'm curious as to whether Peter slowly keeps his job. And uh, remember, people, he was the runner-up for uh, the police chief's job here when Mark Saunders got it. So I think a lot of people may be thinking... Uh, that was a good choice. Uh, we are just about out of time. I'm going to give everybody uh, 15, 20 seconds, starting with Dr. Kevin Smith. What would you like to leave us with? Yeah, I would first like to say thank you to uh, all who were, who were participants in uh, making sure the weekend in Toronto allowed people to peacefully and respectfully protest and then move out of the way so that patients weren't negatively affected. Particularly, I didn't acknowledge Councillor Wong Kim herself. Uh, Mayor Tory, the chief, the, the chief of police, and uh, all of the TPS services who made a huge, huge difference here. And we see what would have happened if we hadn't had uh, leadership at all levels of government. Uh, Councillor Wong Tam, <laughs> ten seconds because yeah. we're out of time. Absolutely, I would think that it's time for Ottawa to treat the lead organizers as terrorists and to seize their personal accounts. I know it's a dramatic uh, call, but uh, in the absence of any other solution, it, it will get their attention. Okay, it's past the top of the hour. I really have to wrap things up. Thank you so much, Dr. Stephanie Carvin, Dr. Kevin Smith, and Councillor Kristen Wong-Tam. And Thank that you. is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.